Hi there. Welcome to Axel Bank Reports History and Today, conversations with America's top nonfiction authors and why their books matter right now. I'm Evan Axelbank, and today we're going to speak with Dr. Patrick Lacroix, the author of John F. Kennedy and the Politics of Faith. He is an independent historian in Fort Kent, Maine, and focuses on religion in the United States. Thanks so much for being here, Dr. Lacroix. It's my pleasure. Thank you for the invitation. And by extension, I appreciate your patrons making this possible. There you go. Um, Before we start our interview, I want to invite listeners to that Patreon page to ask for their support in keeping the show going. Go to patreon.com slash History. We're going to donate part of your contributions to a charity for children's literacy. If a Catholic won the presidency, would he take orders from the Pope? Two months before Election Day in 1960, John F. Kennedy spoke in Houston to a group of Protestant ministers in an effort to squash their concerns about that question. I assumed the first anecdote of your book would center on that moment when the presidential hopeful declared his faith would have no impact on his administration. Instead, though, the book opens with the president about to give a speech three years later in 1963 to a Catholic college where he cites the teachings of the Pope as it related to federal aid to education. You argue that that transformation from denying a religious influence to embracing one is critical to understanding the impact that JFK and his administration had on religion and politics. When did you realize that transformation was a part of the JFK story that we'd all missed? Great question. There are a lot of great works on the campaign of 1960, and those were my launching pads for um, my study, essentially, works from Thomas Cardi and Sean Casey, Um, and it's been a well-known story. Uh, That's still part of the American historical imagination, that struggle between Nixon and Kennedy, during which Kennedy had to rebuke some of the attacks made um, in his direction by not only um, his political opponents, but religious opponents as well. So that was my starting point. But as I started delving into um, materials from the time, I realized that by the end of of his presidency, um, religion was no longer much of an issue um, or much of an issue that was being debated. So I was really interested in seeing how that evolution had taken place, uh, not only between um, Kennedy and religious activists across the country, but within religious denominations, how a lot of American Protestants made their peace with somebody who initially they'd had great reservations about. So how was the American Protestant mind especially changed? We do know that Catholics voted for Kennedy roughly by a four to one margin. Uh, His uh, Kennedy's margin among Jewish voters might've been even higher, Um, but he obtained a score in 1960 that was below Adlai Stevenson's failed run in 1956 among American Protestants. Now, of course, by virtue partly of his uh, tragic assassination, he's entered this pantheon of great presidents, of widely admired presidents, but as to whether he'd take marching orders from the Catholic bishops during his presidency, 
So I chronicle some of the main events in the book uh, that led him to basically emancipate himself from a certain religious narrative by embarking on very tough debates in the field of education and foreign relations. He could show that he was in fact independent from the Catholic Church, uh, that he would make decisions that were in the best national interest. From that moment on, it was easier for him to then go back and embrace his Catholic faith, partly because he was no longer perceived as a threat. I'm not sure if you've done this, but um, I have uh, because I live in Florida. If you go to near where the family had a house in Palm Beach, there is a church that he visited during the Cuban Missile Crisis, and you can see the actual pew that he sat in. There's a little placard that says that he once sat there, right? Um, that is one of the many things that has helped create this image that some people have of JFK being religious and of religiosity. And so the question I want to ask is, how religious was JFK? And when I say religious, I mean not only how often did he go to church, but how often did he pray privately? And how closely did he follow religious teachings? That's another hotly debated issue <laughs> uh, among scholars of Kennedy and the Kennedy family. Uh, the reality is that he, he made no effort to hide the fact at a time when most um, most Americans were members of churches, when, you know, American religiosity was practically at an all-time high. He certainly checked all those boxes during his only full year in office, 1962. He did attend church, his Catholic church, or a Catholic church, um, over 30 times. Um, he didn't make a spectacle of it, but it was well known that he frequented a Catholic church. Um, and that he at least went through all the ritualistic aspect of the faith. So we do know that he didn't hide, a, hide from that. But we have cause to doubt whether those feelings, that religiosity was sincere, as I think you're alluding to in your question. I'm not alluding. <laughs> I'm just saying there are things that have been well documented that may not have been on the, the, the list of um, the initial rules and laws um, laid out. And that's right. Not, not exactly in line with the strictures of the, <laughs> the Catholic Church. No, that's right. Uh, so that's actually one of the toughest parts because Kennedy himself offered very few words about his deeply held beliefs, if any, um, or what they were with his wife, with his closest political advisor, um, with his team as a whole, or even with uh, folks like Richard Cushing, the Bishop of Archbishop of Boston, who was actually quite close to the Kennedy family and to JFK himself. So Kennedy was very tight-lipped, and we have to do a lot of digging, and this is partly why uh, it's a hotly debated issue. He left very few traces, verbal traces, and even fewer written traces about what his deeply held beliefs about the afterlife, about the tenets of the Catholic Church, the worth of living a strictly regulated religious life. So there are a lot of questions that linger and we have to parse through his reactions to certain events. For instance, when he pauses and records himself following the assassination of um, the Vietnamese leader Diem, or Nuo rather, um, in the fall of 1963. So that seems to be a moment where he takes stock of his actions from a moral perspective. We also see that in the spring of 1963, when he does identify publicly, as you were indicating, and this is the opening vignette, when he identifies publicly with the teachings of the Catholic Church, 
but the teachings he identifies with are very much this worldly. That is to say, they're very much about social welfare, fighting poverty, disarmament. So things that are very tangible, if you will, in the realm of public policy. So again, when we try to figure out who he was religiously, we're facing just a dearth of records. So we have to speculate, and I certainly speculate a little bit, mostly in the introduction to my book about who he was. And everything I've read so far has led me to think that he was um, a religious figure in the sense that he did have deeply held religious beliefs, uh, but was still a questioning Catholic, one who was on a, an intellectual journey. Um, and although he never really talked about that journey openly, we do see uh, a certain trajectory over the course of his life during which he expresses, if not religious values, then moral values at least. Who was the religious influence in his life, mom or dad? So certainly it was his mother more than his dad. If I agree with that. At, I, I agree. It's Ma. Right. So, but that's only if we look at it from a, um, a strictly denominational perspective. So he attends church from an early age with his family, with his, with his mother. He spends a few months, I think, at a um, religious or denominational institution uh, before setting off to Harvard, very brief compared to um, his brother Bobby's path to more typical conventional religious education. But that being said, he does pick up some moral cues from his father that are not denominational, that are not Catholic per se. Um, and that might include his rapport with women, the fact that he follows in his father's footsteps in regard to um, you know, marital transgressions. Uh, so although we might think of him as a, as a deeply moral person when it comes to public policy in his, whole, in his own personal life, um, there are glaring um, deviations, let's say, from uh, his religious education. So he gets it from mom and dad, but uh, from different angles, certainly. He picks up different moral cues from each of them. Let's have you explain where the United States was religiously in the 1950s. Let's set the stage for the stage that Kennedy is about to emerge on, both politically and socially, as a figure um, uh, and a sort of a time capsule of that time period. Um, many historians have written about how the post-World War II era and the 1950s are when religion really entered the American public sphere in terms of both lawmaking and in tone. Um, who worshipped in America? What did they worship? How much did they worship? And where was religion in our political lives? Right. I guess I'll start this prehistory actually before the Second World War with Al Smith's campaign for the presidency in 1928. And some scholars have argued quite pers persuasively that this corresponds to a slight thaw in interreligious relations in the 1920s. Um, so it seems as though the ice is slowly starting to break apart. And certainly there are factors other than religion that factor into Al Smith's loss in 1928, including the issue of prohibition, uh, the fact that Hoover is seen as not quite a war hero, but he did a lot during the First World War, a competent administrator, and the economy is roaring. 
So there is cause to believe that Al Smith might have performed actually much better than he did, if not for all these other circumstances, again, as a Catholic. And this also corresponds to the period in which various interdenominational interfaith groups uh, pop into action as, or come into being, I should say, um, as other scholars have mentioned. But something happens during the Second World War, something happens in the 1940s, there's a backlash. There is growing concern about the activities of this reinvigorated papacy uh, that, that is seen as being more militant under Pope Pius XII. And a lot of um, American public figures will make hair of that, including Paul Blanchard. And Paul Blanchard is one of the significant figures in my book. Um, he'd be even more so if I started the story earlier. Uh, so in the 1940s and 50s, Paul Blanchard is one of the best-selling authors in the U.S., period, uh, partly due to his work on, um, we could call it anti-polemic or anti-Catholic polemics, but his work on the Catholic Church, in which he argues that the Catholic Church is inherently at odds with American values. And by positing this dichotomy, he's essentially saying that American values are Protestant values. So there's a fundamental um, irreconcilable character to American religion in that era, according to Paul Blanchard. Um, and his ideas, even though Paul Blanchard is a fairly liberal figure politically, his ideas will be picked up by a lot of American fundamentalist and evangelical preachers who use that eventually uh, to argue against Kennedy's campaign. But what Blanchard is doing is arguing that um, the Catholic Church as an institution seated in Rome uh, must inherently be at odds with the national interests and that Catholics must be um, almost like robot-like figures, that they must comply with the orders or the teachings, if you will, of bishops and the Pope if they are to be true Catholics. Hearing now, he doesn't extend that logic to Protestants, that Protestants have to kind of agree with their pastors if they're going to be church members. So he's implying that American Protestants can use their conscience and can make, you know, decisions based on their own free will, whereas Catholics cannot and must take their marching orders from Rome. Hearing you talk about the history of Catholicism and the way Catholicism is viewed sounds a lot to me the way some people in our public sphere today talk about people who are Muslim and who follow uh, those teachings in the Quran. Um, do you see those echoes? Hear the echoes, I guess? I do. And, um, you know, I, I'm always reluctant to make these types of historical parallels because the conditions at any given point are so unique. Uh, but I think that it comes from a position of fear, um, of tremendous cultural inertia, during the 1950s, for instance, there's great concern about the Soviet Union. We are in a bipolar world, and there's concern about national security, and there's a sense that there must be consensus if the U.S. must prevail in the face of, of um, this clash of superpowers if Western values, they're seen as being Christian and liberal and democratic um, and capitalistic, certainly, must ultimately prevail. And I think that some of that did come as a result of 
9-11 um, and constant warfare in the Middle East and broader social concerns, um, concerns about social change, concerns about cultural change, and the loss of um, a certain Christian hegemony in this country, just as in the 1950s, there was a loss of Protestant hegemony in the country. And all that results, I would argue, from mere lack of social, uh, social contact. In the 1950s, even though there's suburbanization and increasingly Catholics and Protestants are um, coming together in the same neighborhoods, in the same workplaces, ghettos or the old immigrant ghettos are kind of breaking down. Um, it takes a time for that thought to really um, impact how people approach one another and how they perceived um, the religious others. And I think that's still happening today. So it's, it's a work in progress, but I think it comes from a position of fear and concern about the fate of the country, morally, religiously, culturally, et cetera. What did Kennedy say publicly about religion's role in American public life to answer those questions that people had about Catholicism and how he would follow it as president? Well, even before he launches his campaign for the presidency, um, he's very much a part of that Cold War consensus. And sometimes you read public remarks in the 1950s while Nixon and Kennedy are both in the Senate. And if you were just reading the statement, you wouldn't know if it's Kennedy or Nixon. Um, he was just as much a Cold Warrior as his eventual opponent. So we do see a lot of remarks by Kennedy and so all sorts of public, um, public situations where he makes a case for the um, almost providential, almost divine mission of the United States, a Judeo-Christian mission, um, as he would have put it. And he buys into this story of religious consensus, and this is something that a lot of Catholics are doing at the time, kind of buying into it and kind of burnishing their patriotic credentials to show that they're as much Americans as anyone else, or as much committed to the national interest as their Protestant or Jewish neighbors. Now, on the campaign trail in 1960, um, that's not good enough, right? Even though he's as much of a cold warrior, and in some cases, in some respects, even more so than Nixon, because he really um, pulls apart the Eisenhower administration about the missile gap, right? So he makes a really strong case for uh, big national issues, saying that, you know, you know, I'm more concerned about the U.S. than my opponent. But very early, um, he faces those questions, not from Republican opponents, but from his rivals and their teams in the Democratic primary process. Uh, that's seen early on in Wisconsin, but even more so in West Virginia, at a time when West Virginia has the lowest proportion of Catholic voters of all states. Um, and a great case has been made by some scholars that usually it's not the places where Catholics are almost unknown that you know, pose a problem for Kennedy and other Catholics because they don't know what the Catholic is, right? They haven't met one. They, they haven't been um, engaged in the same uh, really vitriolic debates that happen in other states like New York, for instance. Yeah, I was gonna say, this is, West Virginia is not New York City, Little Italy, uh, the East Bronx, things like that, right? I mean, we're talking about a totally different group of or types of social interactions that people are having in a state like West Virginia, with all due respect. Absolutely. And they haven't seen the same type of bruising battles over religion 
and whether you know there should be some sort of public censorship of movies, whether there should be legislation about contraception or information about contraception that you see elsewhere, including New York, but that also happens in like Wisconsin and Illinois, those middling states where the Catholic population might be somewhere between 30 and 60%. So West Virginia is unique and they're concerned, um, the voters concerned, uh, concern is about jobs, economic growth, um, and they see Kennedy as being authentic of speaking to their concerns, uh, even more so than their Protestant co-religionist, uh, Hubert Humphrey, or some of the other contenders for the Democratic nomination. So Kennedy does learn on the campaign trail to um, fight off those attacks. But, you know, that process of uh, education, if you will, of responding in an appropriate way, in a way that will deter people from engaging in anti-Catholic bashing is a long process. And he's still kind of mastering that narrative by October, November of 1960. What are some of the quotes? What are some of the specific things that he said? So one, one big um, rebuttal that he offers actually, and this is to uh, a press association while he's in the primary process, is precisely what we see four months later in Houston. Um, so even though the, his Houston speech in, in September of 1960 is seen as being this momentous uh, landmark address during which he, you know, in the presence of Baptist pastors who are extremely skeptical of his campaign, uh, the reality is that he's making those same claims um, in the spring of 1960. So he's already arguing that he took an oath of office as a congressman, as a senator, that he um, was willing to shed blood for his country, um, that he fought in the Second World War alongside Protestants and Jews, especially, um, and fellow Catholics who did their duty, who were just as committed. And he again argues that uh, as president, he would live up to his oath of office. Um, and it has it's a very powerful message to say that um, no one should be disqualified for the Oval Office or any office in the land because of their sincerely held beliefs. Now, of course, a lot of, you know, we've been talking about the Protestant side of this, but in the process of making claims like that, he disappoints some conservative Catholics, including people within the hierarchy, who are suddenly saying, well, wait a second, uh, here we had a standard bearer, we had somebody running potentially as a Catholic and kind of redeeming the whole Catholic community in the US. And now he's saying that he would never take orders from the bishops, he would never follow, you know, if there was some sort of clash between his religious values and the political interests of the nation, the political interests of that nation would win out. So he's really caught in a bind. And ultimately that doesn't hurt him much among Catholics. As we said, he gets a really high score in November of 1960 among his fellow Catholics. But people within the hierarchy, as we're kind of seeing now, we do have echoes of that now, uh, people within the uh, Catholic Episcopacy do have concerns about whether he can live up to the values of his religious community. <laughs> I love how they're like, what do you mean you're not going to listen? <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> um, uh, let, I also want to ask, where was the papacy and the church as an institution in, um, I'm going to ask about 1958, because that's when St. John the 23rd takes over. Where was St. John the 23rd religiously, politically? 
where did he stand in the eyes of American Catholics or Americans of all stripes? Well, we have to recall that when he's elected by the bishops in 1958, uh, John XXIII is seen as, first, well, first of all, he's about 80, um, and there's a suspicion that this will be a very short papacy that, you know, he'll fairly soon pass away. Um, and then whatever consensus there was about his, um, you know, his papacy, the fact that he would be the Holy Father, that would, you know, kind of lead to some other consensus about some other candidate at the time when the bishops were still um, divided as to who should lead them. But he takes this really bold step, uh, something that comes out of nowhere for a lot of religious observers. He calls a um, an ecumenical council of the church, the first in nearly a century. And suddenly there are all sorts of questions about what will come of this um, ecumenical council, especially since he doesn't really lay out any clear guidelines as to what the program is, what the agenda is. So when Kennedy is elected, there's no sense yet that the immense transformation of the church that comes as a result of Vatican II is underway at that point. There's no sense that there's a groundswell of reformist impulses within the church. It's still possible for John XXIII to be a very conventional pope, um, as Pius XII was. So even though he's a much more approachable figure and one who's um, seen as um, perhaps less dogmatic, uh, which is kind of silly to say of any pope, but perhaps less dogmatic and more um, ecumenical, actually, in his approach than Pius the Twelfth. That's not really seen until the council opens in the fall of 1962, and most of the landmark documents that we associate with um, um, with the, the Second Council come out during the, the reign, during the papacy of Paul VI. So the moment during which we do see a Catholic church reforming itself and a Kennedy willing to embrace that church is actually very brief. It's a period of about six months and certainly less than a year. Before we get into the administration itself, I do wanna ask one more question, one more framing question. How did the rise of Catholics in America echo the rise coincide with the rise of John Fitzgerald Kennedy? Well, Kennedy certainly learned um, to, to see himself and his community as one that was on the, the margins of American society. Even though he benefited from his family's connection in Boston, right, he was the grandson of a Boston mayor. His father was a Hollywood mogul, a millionaire, an ambassador to Great Britain. Um, he had this incredible pedigree, an unusual pedigree for an Irish person of his generation, Irish American person of that generation. Um, he witnesses the campaign of 1928 that I was, that I was mentioning earlier. He is, um, while at Harvard and while at Chilt before that, uh, there are, signs, there is evidence that he, 
he feels excluded by the traditional Brahmin families of New England that he's still, um, again, on, I think saying on the margins is the best way of putting it, uh, because he still has immense privilege. But he does start to see himself as the underdog, and I think that serves him well in the 1950s and during the campaign of 1960. So he's been almost ready for this fight his entire life, and he becomes, uh, in spite of himself, the standard bearer for a new generation of American Catholics who, um, who are no longer kind of trapped, and I, I don't want to say that they felt trapped, but that have been exclusively living in these you know, immigrant communities for the better part of a generation or two generations. There's suburbanization, there's a lot of enthusiasm about, about American, or among American Catholics, about their status as American citizens, and they're no longer identified with very tight-knit uh, parochial communities. So the fact that Kennedy is young and is not only young, but Catholic and Irish, and somebody willing to speak in a different way, in a way that's not clerical, that's not dogmatic, really speaks to a new generation. So we do see a big, um, you know, a, a general generational um, turning of the page, so to speak, from 1928 to 1960. Okay, let's get to the administration a little bit here. In uh, your chapter, Two Controversies, you describe how religion impacts two big ticket federal items, federal aid to education and the Peace Corps. One proved that JFK was resistant to religion in policy. The other proved he was willing to go even further to perhaps overcompensate for his, for his Catholicism. That's right. So in the case of education, this is one of his landmark uh, policy pledges on the campaign trail. So again, even though religion dominates the story in 1960, there are actual substantive issues at stake uh, between Kennedy and Nixon. The missile gap is one. Education is the other big issue. Um, and Kennedy wants to provide federal aid to public education. And a lot of people in the states, especially on the state's rights side of the issue, are concerned about federal intrusion. Uh, but Kennedy is concerned about that gap between the Soviet Union and the American public in terms of education. He wants to promote scientific understanding, scientific knowledge, um, a breakthrough in what we call the STEM fields. So providing federal funds for those means is increasingly seen as being critical. Now, Kennedy has to make a very tough decision with regard to which schools will get federal aid. And very early, early on, he decides, partly because he is uh, involved in this political battle with opponents of people who fear that he'll take marching orders from the Catholic Church, he chooses to say that there will be federal funds for public schools only. So parochial schools would not be eligible, partly because they're already getting funds from students' tuition. Um, and there's concern that if the federal government starts to fund parochial schools, it'll be a slippery slope. And uh, at that time, among Protestants, public schools are seen as being a, an institution for, you know, learning citizenship, learning proper American values that are also kind of Protestant values, potentially. Uh, so Kennedy makes that decision. 
And he, the backlash he gets is not what we'd expect. It's not the backlash of Protestants that we saw in the campaign drill in 1960. It's the backlash of American Catholic bishops who say, well, aren't we providing a valuable patriotic service as well? Aren't we educating American children in the ways of proper citizenship, responsible citizenship? Aren't we teaching them the same subjects from the same angle? Are we contributing to the whole American experiment? So that's the debate that happens over the course of a few months, especially in the spring, late winter and spring of 1961. And ultimately, Kennedy becomes concerned about the PR aspect of this. So there's no doubt that he remains committed to the issue of federal funds for public schools exclusively. However, um, the Catholic bishops might embarrass him, and they're making increasingly vocal statements publicly. And that's true, especially of Cardinal Spellman, the biggest figure in the Catholic Church at that time, um, a cardinal um, and the Archbishop of New York. And he goes on, and there's, I mean, there are all sorts, all sorts of statements that he makes in 1960 that suggest that he would have preferred Nixon, paradoxically. But in 1961, he really um, goes into battle against Kennedy and his plan to exclude Catholic schools, parochial schools, from that education funding. And one of the most dramatic things I found in the course of my research is the fact that Kennedy decides to reach out to the guy named earlier, Paul Blanchard, the anti-Catholic polemicist, to get his advice on the whole issue. And this is Kennedy reaching out to somebody who was obviously like-minded, who was going to reinforce his views because Blanchard was, again, an anti-Catholic polemicist and never would have consented to the provision of public funds for parochial schools. Nevertheless, eventually, Kennedy, being concerned about the PR aspect of it, um, he backs down and he does so privately. So he comes to an agreement with the National um, Catholic Welfare Conference, which would eventually become the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops, and they strike a deal. So there will be two, um, two bills in Congress, and behind closed doors, both the bishops and Kennedy will try to promote the adoption of both of those bills, but one is directly in line with the bishop's agenda and would provide some funds, and mostly loans, but some funds for Catholic schools. And the bill that Kennedy favors for public schools would also be um, said before Congress, but at least publicly, they would each back their own bill and see what comes of it. And ultimately, there's no, aside from a re-upping of another education bill that had been on the books for about four years, neither of those bills pass in uh, 1961. So that will be a lingering issue. And still in 1963, when, when Kennedy, you know, kind of reveals himself to actually be a Catholic, um, at Boston College, he's still pushing then for a some sort of uh, federal program for school funding. Uh, I've read so many books about JFK, and maybe this slipped my mind. I'm sure I've saw it somewhere, but I was fascinated to read in yours um, how the Pope himself, not just the Vatican starts to impact different things, including the Cuban Missile Crisis. Did we ever see a pope step out that much during a major conflict and try to 
bring this thing, try to land the plane, in other words? Yeah, great question. So we, there is, you know, the case of uh, Benedict XV during the First World War, who makes various pronouncements and tries to offer a compromise um, at a point when all countries are so deeply, you know, so deeply set in the conflict that they'll accept nothing but unconditional surrender. Uh, so that's a bust and seen as being a mostly aspirational document. Um, the closest contemporary equivalent, I guess I could call it, um, not quite an equivalent, but um, we did see Pope Francis um, intervene fairly recently in the case of loosening sanctions, if I recall correctly, with regard to Cuba, um, which is obviously seen as a, uh, a political issue, international affairs issue, um, and during behind the scenes as well um, with the Obama administration and officials in Cuba to um, kind of bring that to fruition. But again, but during the Cuban, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, I mean, during the Cuban Missile Crisis, I mean, the Pope actually gets involved and is trying to, you know, I mean, we, we, um, you know, hear all the time about the end of the world, right? At least in in terms of religion. Um, you know, was the Pope cognizant of that? And, and how much was he helped trying to avoid these two world powers from going to war? Um, and I guess I would also ask, can we get any sense of any role that religion may have played in JFK's inner dialogue as he sought to quell the Cuban Missile Crisis? But first on the Pope and then on, on JFK's religious influences during that um, conflict. Sure, the Pope does offer to broker some sort of arrangement, some sort of compromise. I, I haven't gotten the sense from my reading of available evidence, mostly from the JFK Library, that that had much of an impact on the resolution of the conflict. Uh, Kennedy, needless to say, is much more uh, engaged in some sort of solution with his generals, the chiefs of, sta of staff, his advisors, Bobby, especially his brother Bobby. Um, and of course, the Soviet ambassador. So there's no sense that Kennedy is much um, affected by any offer or, or much influenced by any offer or any statement from the Vatican during the conflict. But what I have found is that uh, Pope uh, John XXIII does play an incredible role and largely unsuspected role during the aftermath. So the process of getting a nuclear task ban treaty adopted uh, at a time when there's concern about nuclear fallout from increasing testing um, and concern about continuing escalation as well from all these nuclear blasts that are happening in New Mexico or you know, out in Siberia. So it's really in the course of eight months following the Cuban Missile Crisis that uh, the Pope really has an impact on international affairs. And we have the editor of Saturday Night, um, Norman Cousins, whom I believe was Jewish, um, doing shuttle diplomacy between Washington and Moscow through the Vatican. Um, ostensibly, he's actually going to the Vatican just to relay the good wishes of JFK and then on to Moscow on personal business. But the fact is, the Pope is actually um, easing the conversation between East and West, and Norman Cousins is the guy in place representing Kennedy and then coming back to Washington to offer um, the respects of the Pope and also what the Pope is offering to do to continue 
that dialogue. But as for Kennedy's, uh, to tackle the second part of your question, as to Kennedy's personal feelings and the moral dilemmas he might have felt during the Cuban Missile Crisis, um, again, he's left no written trail, no paper trail about that. Um, honestly, I, I'm intrigued. Uh, if anyone digs up anything, I would love to hear it and to kind of contribute to, to the story of Kennedy's religious education, religious journey. Um, but it's not something that I found personally. One of the things that scholars have noted for years is that it took JFK a long time to come around on matters of race relations. Without a doubt, um, he may have you know, harbored some feelings that civil rights was the right thing to do, but he sort of, based on the evidence we've seen, he sort of saw it as kind of being in the way of, of his foreign policy goals and something that he just didn't want to tackle head on because it was so politically loaded here in the United States. Ultimately, he does give a landmark address, and it's ultimately his bill that Lyndon Johnson ushers through Congress, of course, with the help of a tremendous um, outpouring of support and a tremendous movement that we saw in the United States. Um, how did JFK's approach toward dealing with religion and his own religious um, sort of uh, personality and, and the religious aspects of his persona. How did that coincide with his evolution on race? It's almost like he had this dual evolution happening within himself politically and personally at once. Sure, that's a great way of putting it, that he was, you know, what I found especially endearing about Kennedy, to whom I was completely indifferent when I started this project, <laughs> is the fact that he grows, he learns, he changes, He's conflicted, and ultimately, as a result of that moral conflict and those dilemmas, we do see the best Kennedy of all, the, the one we see in 1963, who's opening up on religion, who, um, you know, from the perspective of my own personal values, strikes the right tone in regard to uh, social justice, uh, disarmament, and um, a lot of, you know, causes that we associate with the 1960s, actually. Um, a loosening up of um, certain orthodoxies in American society and American politics. So I agree entirely that he does evolve. Um, it, it's very hard to tell again just how far that evolution takes place with regard to his inner deeply held, deeply held beliefs. Uh, it is widely acknowledged that in 1960, on a personal level, he's the much more liberal candidate, much more liberal than Nixon with regard to civil rights. Um, and there's that famous phone call he makes to get um, uh, Martin Luther King out of, out of jail. Uh, and that happens again. We did another episode. We did an episode on that alone, by the way, but go ahead, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So good good segue potentially for people who, are, who haven't yeah, listened. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But that one's yet. with uh, Paul Kendrick. It's called Nine Days, uh, great, great book. Um, yeah. So I think that there is, just to, to speak to, to that, that there is that evolution. The problem is that he's tied down by, um, you know, the structures of the very nature of the Democratic Party at that time that has a huge base in the South. Um, and he needs those votes to carry out his agenda with regard to the Peace Corps, with regard to education. So he has to tread really carefully. He needs wins as a president and to him, getting a federal aid to education bill passed would be a huge win. And from that point on, he'd be able to move on to other more controversial issues of his agenda, including civil rights. 
Um, that ultimately comes in 1963 without any outcome on the education issue, but he's trying to make steady progress and to use the structures within the federal government, the FBI, and things that are a little bit less publicly visible, less visible than actual legislation to carry out his agenda on civil rights without alienating those, you know, white Southern supremacists that have a lot of weight in the American Senate. There's another wonderful book called um, The Last Hundred Days. It's by a wonderful writer named Thurston Clark. I'm sure you're familiar with it. Um, it's a terrific book. It's a popular, it's a, you know, it's a book um, written for a popular audience, but um, it, it um, catalogs the last hundred days of Kennedy's life. And one of the things that Thurston Clark identifies is the death of his very, very, very young son, just a few days old. Um, and he argues that there is a transformation in Kennedy's personality, both in how he um, had a relationship with his wife and, or I should say in his relationship with his wife. And then also in terms of how he viewed his own presidency, did you find that there was a um, religious awakening in him after the death of his young, young, young child? Right, and, and I do agree, Clark has written a great book, um, definitely worth picking up. And it does go into the kind of the nitty gritty of those last hundred days, like a really interesting chronological tableau of what he undergoes. And I think that Clark makes a persuasive case with regard to Kennedy as a person. But politically, much of what he describes is already in place by the time that Clark picks up the narrative in July or late June of 1963, uh, because you know the first bill that Kennedy proposes on civil rights, on the issue of racial justice, comes up in February of 1963. So well before his landmark address to the nation on civil rights, which comes, I think, on June 11th, 1963, yeah. as a result of events in Alabama, uh, Kennedy is already talking about the relationship between faith and moral commitments and the pursuit of equal rights. And that happens in uh, February, again, of 1963, shortly after a major conference takes place in Chicago, conference, National Conference on Race and Religion, in which Martin Luther King takes part, a lot of figures we associate with the religious left, as well as Sergeant Shriver, uh, Kennedy's own brother-in-law, is there as an informal representative of the administration. and. I think it's quite likely that Trevor himself being a deeply Catholic and deeply moral person carries back those sentiments to Washington and pushes, just as Bobby is pushing the president to, to act on it, because this is at, at a point when uh, there is an escalation and uh, African-Americans are no longer to say, willing to accept, um, to wait, uh, as King himself puts it in his famous letter from the Birmingham jail. So the movement is picking up steam and Kennedy is responding to that politically. Now, whether that marks a shift in his own personal beliefs, I have no reason to believe that it did, honestly. I think that was a response as, and Kennedy was a very pragmatic figure as Nixon was, that was a response to what was actually happening on the ground. And I'm not sure that it actually swayed uh, his own personal feelings about um, uh, desegregation. It's a... It's convenient that we're taping this episode on a Sunday. Um, I want to ask, uh, 
how did JFK's speaking style, not just in the language he uses, but in his appeal to conscience, mirror what people hear on Sundays? And was that done purposely? Oh, that's a great question. Um, I'm not sure about that. So I think we could make a case for that much more while he was a senator, um, while he you know, was engaging in the big issues surrounding the Cold War and was making a case for this Judeo-Christian America. Uh, but that the tenor of his remarks and the way in which he approaches faith publicly does change 1963. And of course, he has to appeal to the nation as a whole. And I'm not sure that the way in which he went about that wasn't necessarily such as to reconcile segregationists to his views, to his values, um, because, you know, for centuries before that, white supremacists had been making a case for segregation and before that slavery on a biblical, you know, on biblical grounds. So they were finding the arguments that they needed um, and they were not instantly persuaded. What Kennedy is more successful at is not necessarily utilizing that language, even though today, you know, we consider his address on June 11th, 1963 as this landmark moment in the quest towards equal rights um, and certainly an impressive work of American oratory. So it is impressive. But what really works for him is not so much the speech in itself. It's the alliances he brokers, sometimes behind closed doors with people of faith, with religious leaders who share his values. Um, typically, they're Presbyterians, there are some Methodists. Uh, it does spend various religious denominations, some Catholics, um, and certainly Jews as well, who are all committed to this issue of equal rights, who meet with him at the White House several times in June of 1963. And they're the ones who are gonna go back out across the country to their own parishes, to their own religious umbrella organizations and various uh, denomina denominational associations and in a sense carry the gospel of equal rights and say we have to support the president in this and that kind of gives them a bit of an impulse to act more strongly some of them had been involved in civil rights campaign as early as 1961 or 1962 and here i'm referring specifically to white clergymen um, who'd been involved but the fact that now the president is reaching out to them has a powerful impact psychologically on these religious leaders and they're willing to um, support him in the quest for this upgraded civil rights legislation that's uh, put before Congress in June of 1963. So how was Catholicism viewed after JFK is forced from the presidency by his death, after America has this experience with having a Catholic leader? Well, he's shown for one thing that it's true. There's no evidence that he does take marching orders from uh, either, which kind of seems absurd in res retrospect from John the 23rd, uh, or that Paul the sixth would have given him marching orders that he would have complied with. Uh, so there's none of that truly. Uh, he's been able to show himself uh, as a good uh, steward, a good guardian of American national interests, including during the missile, uh, Cuban missile crisis. And even though he's identified with liberal values explicitly, there's no question about his um, commitment to the American nation. And the fact that now the Second Council of the Vatican is underway, 
there's a very real sense among at least somewhat moderate Protestants that the church is reforming itself, that it's becoming more Protestant-like. That encourages a lot of people to take a second glance and to reconsider its values. Um, and Kennedy has successfully brokered a lot of interfaith alliances in support of his agenda. And so by the time that the next presidential campaign rolls around, as a result of his tragic assassination, of course, is no longer a figure of any great controversy, and neither would any other Catholic figure. And actually, on the Republican ticket in 1964, less than a year, you know, roughly eight months after Kennedy's assassination, we do have a Catholic figure from upstate New York on the Republican ticket alongside Barry Goldwater. That causes no controversy whatsoever. You do have a journalist asking, well, will this affect his values, um, but there's no sense that he cannot be an independent person looking out for American national interests. And I really looked deeply as well, even though it was beyond the scope of my book, at the campaign of 1968 to see whether Bobby had faced those issues. And um, Bobby attends open air masses with striking workers. Um, uh, he's involved with Cesar Chavez in that regard, and they're both very explicitly identified with a certain type of Catholicism by then. And uh, I found no hint of controversy either. And it seems as though um, politically, at least at the presidential level, there's no sense after 1963 that a Catholic cannot be a good president. There are other issues, <laughs> other religious issues that do pop up in the course of the yeah, intervening It's not like we were done years. with the whole, that, that whole issue. Um, no, no, that's right. <laughs> very recently, a U.S. Senate hopeful said government schools should be closed and that they should be reopened in churches and synagogues. Those are his words and not mine. Um, what does a statement like that say about our current moment and how far we are from where JFK was as he discussed funding in schools? Arguably, it's a complete 180 uh, among certain religious figures, certainly evangelicals and fundamentalists. In 1960, public schools are seen as the ultimate bastion of American values. And this is a time when there is prayer in school, legally speaking, and their uh, Bible reading is perfectly legitimate as well. And those two, those two practices are banned very exp explicitly in public schools by Supreme Court rulings that come in 1962 and 1963. So while, coincidentally, while Kennedy is in office, from that moment on, it becomes a lot more hard. It becomes a lot harder for um, people on what we today call the religious right to make the case that public schools are safe for people of faith, and that changes all the more in uh, the nineteen the remain, remainder of the nineteen sixties, nineteen seventies. Now, Randall Balmer Balmer has made the case that it's also tied to race. That integration leads a lot of white Protestant families to create their own institutions, either in suburbs by moving out physically and bringing the resources with them, um, or by creating all sorts of private schools, charter schools, where they can monitor who gets in and who doesn't. Uh, but it is a complete 180, and it speaks to the amount of the, uh, the extent of the cultural transformation that occurs in the 1960s and 1970s where fundamentalist and evangelical Protestants no longer feel completely at home or welcome in their own country or with the civic institutions that this country has provided itself with. And so they have to create an 
alternative educational system they'll preserve their values and their institutions. So it's really a reaction to secularization that arguably, again, began with Kennedy himself with growing pluralism, multiculturalism in the country, but also with Supreme Court rulings that said, well, from now on, uh, these, these schools, pardon, must be entirely non-denominational and must be open and inclusive to all. Do Americans want separation of church and state or just separation of other religions and the state? In other words, would they be okay now with their own religion being endorsed by government? I suspect as much in some cases, uh, perhaps not so much mainline Protestants, uh, mainline Protestants who are now part of the minority at a time when, you know, there was a time when they were part of the um, intelligentsia and they were setting the tone for the religious conversation across the country. Um, there's been a sharp decline in mainline Protestant denomination, de denominations membership since 1960s. They are typically more on the liberal end of the spectrum whenever they speak out politically. And I think that um, such churches uh, would be a lot more welcoming of religious diversity, um, but they're also more likely to endorse um, a what we call a hard secularism that excludes all religious influence from the government. Um, other groups would want the freedom to exclude, in a sense. There's something very puritanical about that, right? When the Puritans come to this eventual country, to this continent, you know, they're not seeking religious freedom as a universal principle, they're seeking freedom from persecution for themselves. And that's what's still happening today. Um, they want to create their own religious, uh, I hate to say utopia, but their own, you know, kind of uniform religious community that has its own moral order uh, to the exclusion of other groups that might have their own moral commitments, um, which again speaks to your earlier question about Muslim groups and other religious minorities. So, the it's kind of the challenge of a large nation like this that is inherently whether we like it or not inherently pluralistic and i think that that's been a great virtue of this country uh but some people are still uncomfortable with that especially when it's a great unknown and they feel so their um their own values are being threatened and they're being encouraged by their pastors or talk radio or some other you know media to to believe that to see a threat in other groups I'm not sure what you're working on next, but I'd be curious to know um, if you see another book as being necessary as um, that would be titled Such and Such President and the Politics of Faith, a, vo a volume two. So is a study needed on, say, George W. Bush, Barack Obama, Donald Trump, titled the same way, Blank and the Politics of Faith? Who would you follow this up with volume two? I would argue that, you know, if we're looking at the post-Kennedy period, that um, a volume of that kind would be perhaps most helpfully written about LBJ. Um, again, partly because he finds himself in a narrative about the secular 1960s, and it's a fairly understudied period from the perspective of, Amer of American religious history. The fact is there's been so much, so, so much uh, written about the, the rise of the religious right 
and uh, recent conservative acti activism in American politics. Um, I don't think anyone could ever get through the entire body of literature and do it justice, honestly. So, you know, and that narrative usually starts in the 1970s somewhere, either because of Roe v. Wade, either because, as again, Randall Bomber explains, because of racial integration, um, Reagan's relationship to the moral majority has been quite well explored, um, which is not to say that there might not be new interpretations, but that goes as well for Bush and especially people on the Republican side of the American political spectrum. But LBJ does remain, and this is not to diminish any work that's been done on LBJ himself, um, including some magisterial work by um, Robert Caro, but um, I think there's a lot more to be said about his relationship to faith. Um, and that's, that remains one of the lesser known um, aspects of his presidency, whether he was a moral figure, and oftentimes he's depicted as quite the opposite, to be quite frank. So I'd be very intrigued, and chances are it's going to be somebody else writing that volume. But am I allowed to ask what's next for you? Sure. Well, actually, um, my second book just came out, and it's on... Congratulations. Entirely, thank you. It's on an... Well, I won't say an entirely different issue because religious um, discourse does come up. Uh, it's about uh, Franco-Americans, so people from French Canada who immigrated to the States, mostly the New England States and New York State, uh, starting in the 1840s, but really um, much more in the 1860s, 70s, and 80s, and who tried to form their own cultural communities to ensure cultural preservation, partly by maintaining ties to Quebec and partly by um, you know, rallying around the, the Catholic Church, and specifically on the political aspect of their, um, their distinct existence on American soil, and the extent to which immigrant groups could try to take part in common civic institutions with other immigrant groups, with native-born Anglo-Saxon Americans, and whether there were opportunities for them to affect change and to give some sort of course that matched their values to their own communities. Dr. Patrick Lacroix, author of John F. Kennedy and the Politics of Faith. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Check out that book and his website, which is querythepast.com. He's on Twitter at querythepast. I want to invite listeners to our Patreon page to ask for your support in keeping the show going. Go to patreon.com slash axelbankhistory. We will donate part of your contributions to a charity for children's literacy. And thank you for listening to Axel Bank Reports, History, and Today, conversations with America's top nonfiction authors and why their books matter right now. Check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Axel Bank History. We update those with clips from the show, guest announcements, and book recommendations. We'll see you next time. Thanks.